This is Fire Rescue One Side Alpha Podcast, putting fire service leaders in front of hot topics facing firefighters today. Now here's the executive editor of FireRescueOne.com and FireChief.com, Chief Mark Bashore. Hi, this is Mark Bashore, executive editor for FireRescueOne and FireChief.com. Thanks for joining us today. We are joined by Sarah Jane Key, a PhD, uh, who is the director of the Center for Fire, Rescue, and EMS Health Research at the National Development and Research Institutes. She was the principal uh, investigator on two large-scale VHS-funded studies on health and readiness of the U.S. Fire Service and on a study of the health of women firefighters. She is a co-investigator of several studies focused on fitness, nutrition, and health behaviors in firefighters. She completed her doctorate in psychology with a health emphasis at the University of Missouri, Kansas City, and the American Heart Association's Fellowship on Epidemiology and Prevention of Cardiovascular Disease. Sarah is also a Fire Rescue One contributor and author. Uh, Dr. Janke, thanks for joining us today. Oh, happy to be here. Yeah, I appreciate you taking time out of your schedule. And for the firefighters out there who may not be familiar, can you kind of give us a 20,000 foot look at who the National Development and Research Institute is and tell us what type of research uh, you do at the Center for Fire Rescue and EMS Health Research? Sure. Yeah, we are a not-for-profit research firm um, that so our our all of our scientists are full-time um, full-time researchers and focus on several different topics, but I direct the Center for Fire Rescue and EMS Health Research that's um, focused on looking at first responder health. We have everything. Our first studies were um, kind of qualitative studies and then looking at like cardiovascular risk factors, cohort, um, cohort studies looking at risk for injury. And we've kind of evolved as research questions. You know, with every study, you get more questions. And so we've dug in a little bit more to things like the health of women in the fire service. Um, we have some studies on cancer. We have one looking at um, where we just looked at um, dosometers, so a wristband dosometer for measuring fire ground carcinogens. Um, we have some on, on behavioral health, actually several on behavioral health, looking at how you can uh, improve resilience among firefighters, things like that. So kind of a little bit of everything. I like to um, just kind of follow what the data tells us and what the fire service says that they need research. So little little bit of little bit of everything. I grew up with the fire service. Dad retired as a fire chief um, right outside of uh, Kansas City in the suburbs. So um, kind of kind of do it for selfish reasons because I want firefighters to be healthy, want dad to live a long and healthy life. Well, we, we appreciate that. And I appreciate the, uh, the overlook there. Um, and, and obviously we are in a, a pretty dynamic time um, as we speak, frankly, with um, uh, continuing to navigate this COVID odyssey. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, the need for continuing COVID research and frankly, how it impacts firefighters? I I think the better question today is probably how it doesn't impact firefighters. Okay. <laughs> it's it, so a couple different things. And one one reason I think it's important um, to look at COVID and the response with firefighters is just because I think we are going to see the more research that comes out about um, COVID. It, they're definitely looking like some long term impacts for folks who are exposed. Um, and I think for the fire service, you know, we have a couple different studies like the National Firefighter Registry is ramping up with NIOSH. There's a prospective cohort study that I work on um, with the folks down at University of Miami and University of Arizona and a, a big group there looking at like tracking firefighter health across time. I think you will see an impact um, because there are some looking like some long-term impacts 
from COVID infections. So I think for the fire service to be able to track those and know is important. But I also think, um, you know, fire fire service is one of the perfect groups to look at um, kind of high impact because they're exposed to the to the um, virus so often. I mean, there have already been so many deaths from that were COVID related for for fire service and folks who were responding to calls. So I think um, we can learn a lot more. It's kind of looking at those um, areas where you have a lot of folks who have are ex- going to experience infection, so you can look at look at that group. So I think it will, can also inform like the larger picture of it. So it's why it's also important to do research with, um, you know, essential workers that are working in hospitals and, and on COVID units and and keeping track of that stuff. But I think firefighters have exposures that you know the benefit of working on a COVID unit is you have all the protections in place and you're bringing someone in that you can really control that environment, which fire service just doesn't have, which is true of pretty much every exposure they have, but um, it, it makes them the perfect little microcosm of, of people to, to research and to look at. So yeah. uh, from yeah. just an infection standpoint, I think that's an important thing. Okay. So are you getting cooperation from, uh, you know, as you begin this research, you're getting good cooperation from the firefighters or are, oh, we stone, yeah. are we stonewalling you like firefighters typically do on a lot of research things? You know, it's been, um, so overall, a lot of the studies, and I've talked to a lot of the different research groups that are doing, because everyone kind of has their different piece that they're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and like the groups that are doing antibody testing, um, which, you know, obviously has some challenges too, but doing you know, either testing firefighters to see if they have COVID or to see if they have antibodies for it, um, or they're getting great responses. And the fire service has done an awesome job. I mean, I don't, when we go in for studies, um, we typically get response rates of upwards of like 95, 97% that I really think it's like an awesome time to be um, a scientist looking at the fire service because people are really interested in they really want to know they want to contribute people see it as like contributing to the greater good of the fire service and the future of the fire service so yeah they're a good um they're a good group to work with in every group we've had a couple projects that we are um, looking at proposing with the fire service that we have proposed looking at the COVID response and the impact and kind of behavioral health risk factors and um, everyone i've talked to has been incredibly interested it, with what time they have. I mean, right now, it's just such a challenge because it's it, research kind of has to take a back burner and we have to design the studies around what departments are capable of and, you know, keeping track of if you have a spike, your research is going to be at the very bottom of the sure. bottom of the pile. But sure. know, so I know you submitted a grant proposal recently uh, to look at the impacts of, you know, at the national organizational and individual level. Can you talk about uh, your current goal uh, with that research and what do you expect firefighters might gain from the outcomes? So I, I, I think the best way to describe it um, in like a big picture is to basically do an after action review of the COVID response at the mm-hmm. national level, organizational level and individual level and see kind of what worked and what didn't. I've talked to a lot of people at a lot of different departments who have said, um, you know, I, what do you think other departments are doing about this topic or this issue? So what we proposed in that study um, and what we'd like to see, it, it, I know like Department of Defense is starting to look at this, like how are they pivoting where they need to pivot um, to have resources? And and in some ways, um, I think, you know, post 9-11, there was a lot of focus on, okay, how do we be, how do we need to be prepared for future terrorist attacks? Um, I think this has raised, I think this incident and the pandemic has raised every issue that we 
should have been prepared for for a pandemic to hit that we didn't know, you know, and and didn't know or didn't, you know, some people said kind of were able to predict this in hindsight, more people were predicting that this something like this would hit um, than we like to admit. But now that it has, what do we do um, to be able to better respond in the future? And are there lessons learned in this? Like it's you don't want to miss the lessons learned about how the departments were able to pivot the things that things that maybe in the future uh, one chief made the say, made the comment he said you know we've ever in my career used N95 masks twice and he's like it has occurred to me as we're looking at infection and infection control that maybe we should have had these stocked all along and maybe there are other calls that we should know that we should be taking you know if there's a if there's a bad flu season if there's a bad um i think it has revealed for the for the country in general, but specifically for the fire service and for first responder groups, kind of every weakness that there is related to um, this type of infection and a pandemic. And this is, I, I would say for all intents and purposes that the literature I'm reading is this, one, this is one's not going away soon, but two, this will not be the last time that there's um, something like this. So how do we how do we make sure that, that, you know, that you've got all the resources lined up at the national level to roll that kind of stuff out as it needs to be rolled out, you know, get communication across different groups between the departments and the um, organizations and, and the scientists to answer whatever questions they need. I mean, I want the fire service to be ready for the next one, um, you know, far better than who, who knew this one would be like this. But um, and then at the department level, you know, what policies are departments putting in place? Some have had incredibly good policies, but there's been a million questions. You know, do you allow people to switch shifts? Do you, how do you socially distance with people that you live with? How, you know, what resources do you need in place for testing? Um, those types of things. And then the individual level, I think we are seeing the individual impact in terms of particularly with behavioral health um, around the country. And I think for firefighters in particular, it's it's a challenge. I mean, they're essential workers in a way that the um, hospital workers, which again, all respect in the world to anyone who, who does that work too or works in a nursing home, but fire service is just a different, um, and first responder groups, paramedics, you must know, different position in terms of what their role is and being out in the community and and they've always been really community facing and how is that impacted by the facts and, and how's it impacted that they're essential workers and going home and possibly exposing families to this you know infection that we don't know enough about so i think we, they're definitely um it's for when i i've talked to folks i had a, a um, great exchange with frank Lido the other day up at FDNY, you know, he runs their counseling stuff, and, and he was just saying that he thinks that um, the, the impact that you see from this will be far worse than the infections ever where you just, he's like, you just don't know what to do with a lot of this stuff. So I think, um, I think that, I think it's, you know, we need to figure out how do we get people to the point where they can handle it the best they can. Fire service, resilient folks across the board, which is awesome. But, you know, how do we make sure that we have all those? Because some of those things that in the past, you know, the sitting around the, the kitchen table getting together in big groups after shift to decompress, maybe, you know, what do you do when that is absent and not something that can can work out? So, yeah. Yeah. You mentioned in that first part, we we're talking about the national organizational individual level and, and all those pieces, the, the best practices that uh, you've seen in some of this research and you know, just a comment from me that um, organizationally, we as a fire service and not just fire service, we need to uh, put uh, the EMS service in there as well. 
from a fire and EMS service, we tend to struggle to capitalize on lessons learned, uh, especially uh, from the things that people and politicians uh, can't see. You know, yeah. bl blind faith isn't one of our best virtues. <laughs> and uh, it, um, it, it does become difficult uh, when we're talking a virus that nobody can see. Uh, so I appreciate the, you know, the continued research and, and then that focus on uh, behavioral health, you know, as if our business wasn't uh, difficult enough with everything and, you know, and stressful enough with everything that we do and, and deal with, this pandemic uh, is, is frankly something that most people alive today have never dealt with. You know, we had bird flu and we had swine flu and we had some others, but they were nothing like this. Right. Um, not, not from the, um, the, the breadth and depth that this has taken. So you mentioned behavioral health and uh, how uh, you see some of those effects. Can you go a little deeper into the behavioral health aspect and how firefighters uh, can cope with uh, the effects of both the isolation and the quarantine and everything else that comes along with that? I think, um, I think some of it is the same stuff that everyone's talking about, you know, stay as connected as you can. We know that the, the folks who are the most resilient, resilient are the ones who have those connections with other folks um, and, and stay connected, whether that's, you know, I, Zoom calls, which I know we're all tired of, but, you know, just checking in with folks, checking in with each other. Um, I'm always, always a big fan of paying as much attention to the folks around you on your crew or the people at your department in terms of um, where they're at. In, ter in, in terms of behavioral health, because I think you're often the last person who realizes if something's really bothering you or you're really off, but you can recognize it in someone else. So I think paying attention to that, to those types of things. But I think another thing for, for the fire service is to, um, it, there was a great article recently and they talked about kind of a purposeful rumination and, and kind of being mindful about where you're at with things and, and realizing that this is just acknowledging this is a really frustrating and difficult time that there is a lot of confusion out there. There is, um, you know, the data every day is new data because there's new data coming in. So results coming out are new and there's all this kind of just like national feeling of blah. And, yeah. um, you know, I, I, I don't That's know. That's a technical term. It is very, very super scientific. Right. Um, Yes, but it, it's um, it's kind of like feeling shitty, but a little bit more than that. So, but, you know, I, I think just part of it is just realizing, like, you're going to have those days that just you're just going to you're just going to feel that way. You know, you're going to feel um, you're going to feel frustrated. It's going to be but you'll get through it. You'll, you know, keep going and you just keep doing what you're doing. You're doing. But um, but then talking to people when you realize you've got a couple days of that in a row and you're really struggling Fire service and first responders are in a rough spot with this, with this virus. Yeah. Um, it's a, is it, like you said, it's just unprecedented. So how you manage it and what you do with it and, um, and how you respond to it is, it's a challenge. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, we were talking, we were talking before the call uh, a little bit about all the, changes in protocols and the changing information and one day it's the flu and the next day it's not and all those different things and that too wears on everybody's psyche and I think uh, you know it's 
um, just like any other struggle that we've gone through, the advice you just gave and I typically give to keep your head, keep your head down and make sure you're focusing on service, which is what our mission truly is about, uh, then you will get through this and we will get through it together and recognize that that a lot of the changes are because this is or was a novel virus, meaning it had never been seen before in humans. So the expectation that there's going to be perfect scientific um, answers the first time something happens is uh, uh, an unreasonable expectation, I think. And um, so I appreciate you continuing to do the research. And it kind of takes us we uh, we hear a lot about uh, this is the novel virus and this is just the first wave. So we talk about uh, or, or not so much we talk about it, but we hear a lot of discussion about more waves and surges of the virus coming. Um, from your research and, and from what you can talk about, what do firefighters need to know about the potential for future surges? And, um, you know, how are they going to position themselves to get through this while we're still, frankly, dealing with the, the first surge? Yeah. I, well, I think the most important thing is to know that it is coming and they are they are happening. Um, and it's I think it gets I think part of the frustration with it and what I hear a lot with the frustration in general is just um, and I think that's part of it in terms of the behavioral health piece too. not to revisit that too much. But I think um, I think the up and down and the you know, the back and forth and this has become such a political polarizing issue. Um, I think that's weighing on people at this point in time. I think all the unknowns about it are weighing. I think, uh, uh, again, I was talking to a chief who said, you know, I will put people in a hazmat suit and send them into something that I say, I know if this, if your hazmat suit leaks at all, this could kill you. And they're like, yeah, let's go. And he's like, but I put, put, tell someone fully outfitted, you know, here's the best PP we have for you. Go in this house where we know someone's COVID positive and they don't want to go in. Um, so, so I think that that weighs heavy and realize that's going to be hang, weighing heavy for a while because that's because um, it's not going anywhere. We are seeing surges. And I think it's frustrating that with the data. You know, the question is, is it just more testing? So that's why the cases are going up. Um, if you don't, you know, if you don't test, you technically won't have any recorded cases, which is. Sure. It's actually accurate. Um <laughs> But I think there are a couple good things, and I think it's important for the first responder groups to be aware of and paying attention to, because I think it helps you kind of get mentally set to where you, you know what's coming. Yeah. A, a couple of the stats that you want to look at specifically, it's not necessarily just the number of cases, because that can fluctuate based on the number of tests, but you want to look at the percent of positive cases in your community. And so that would be the number of positives compared to the number that are being tested. That's um, usually a pretty good early indicator tell. The other one is when you start to see hospitalizations go up. Um, and most states you can get slightly legged, but um, most states and most communities you can get pretty good county data on number of hospitalizations. Um, those don't tend to re really be reflective of um, just testing because you know you don't go to the hospital if you're not symptomatic um, or, or don't really need it because who the hell wants to be in a hospital right now. Right. Um, but so hospitalizations going up that positive rate most of the most of the counties will publish something about that and I think it's important for for those first responder groups to be paying attention to that because I think it um, it gives you the heads up of what's coming so you know like if you know if you're in Phoenix 
it, you knew you could see that coming in the weeks ahead and the days ahead. It's lagged, so you know you don't get those results for a couple of days. And by the time people are being hospitalized for it, you know they that's exposure that was typically two to three weeks before. So you also want to look at it um, from that perspective that, that that if you're starting to see increases in hospitalizations, it's going to have to be some pretty dramatic changes in the community to be able to kind of back that off. But I think that helps like get you in the headspace to to know and then it can also help you like monitor and measure your own personal risks and exposures and, and weigh those for yourselves so i think those are the i think those are the big numbers that i recommend um keeping an eye out for there will likely be surges there will um you know there's there's good talk um and some good data that a second wave is likely especially in areas that um that obviously worse than areas that are not doing as many as the, of the protective factors um, and, you know, the doing the more strict social distancing and, and those types of things. So I will not be shocked if there's a second round of um, shutdowns at some point. I mean, it's it's hard. And like you just mentioned, it's the it's invisible. It's so hard because they think if you look around and you say, like, I don't see, you know, I don't know anyone that has it. It's really easy to feel like it's all kind of um, it's made up. You know, it's just being completely over overblown but um you know then you start because i've seen a couple of people post on on facebook you know does anyone even know anyone that's had it and um it, but then there are definitely places where you know they know a lot of people have had it and there yeah. have been a lot of deaths and there have been a lot you know we're counting deaths but there are also a lot of people that go on ventilators or don't make it quite to the ventilator but have a really awful time with it so yeah. and, and while it feels mentally comfortable to think um it's not going to happen to me there yeah there are some groups that you know they, they talk about the risk factors for it um and, and the risk factors for if you're going to really struggle with it or, or die from it and it's it seems like oh if you don't have any pre-existing conditions you're safe um but the pre-existing conditions in some of those studies when they classify them are things like hypertension uh, which we know hypertension is pretty wide, uh, widely spread in the fire service for a number of reasons. Um, obesity, like uh, it, that's based on a, a strict BMI measurement. So if you're, you know, if you're like, well, I'm not that overweight, I, like the, the classifications on most of these studies are pretty gross uh, category, ca category class uh, classifications. So, uh, you know, do you have the risk factors? A lot of people have the, you know, have the risk factors, um, that they're pointing to that they're pretty common risk factors right. So, right yeah i think just kind of being aware aware of those types of things keeping track of the numbers in your area if you have um man if your department has uh is on the enforce um departments tracking that you you can get you know live updates on on that which is amazing to be able to track that and see what's you know you kind of predict what's coming based on what you've had yeah, are you working with the uh, with infers to both NIFRS and infors to be able to uh, track this data? Yeah, so w one of the things that we're um, that we've proposed one part of one of the studies that we're looking at, and this is also to look at shifts in um, in the impact on behavioral health, is that we think that we're seeing um, shifts in the types of calls. So we know that. The, there was a, a great report put out by um, by Lori and her group on the the data that looked at like the shift in you know obviously there were less 
um, automobile accidents as stay-at-home orders were put in place and things like that. But there's also been um, some speculation by the public health community. One of our centers does a lot of work on opioid abuse. And they're, what they're seeing in that realm is more things like overdoses as people who were unable to access their regular medical care. So um, accidental overdoses on opioids, often from people who were addicted based on initially on um, prescribed pain medication that then didn't have access to it. We also, it looks like are seeing increases in community suicides compared mm -hmm. to attempted suicides. So one of the things we wanna look at there is are what were the shifts that, um, that and can we predict, because now we have these awesome huge data sets, can we predict um what that what that trend looks like so just so you know what's coming and you can be prepared for it type, right. of, um, type of thing so yeah i think the, i think as we look more at the data we'll see shifts in not just the types of calls um and the locations of calls but the, the severity of calls you know um, anecdotal evidence from from small data sets is showing um you know obviously increased like domestic violence incidents um, child abuse those types of things so yeah. Yeah, I think the connection to infers and infors will help people make, uh, you know, as that as that research continues, that's going to uh, be one of those places where people really understand the benefit of infors and being able to to analyze that data. So I, I appreciate that you guys are working together. And as we uh, begin to draw this to a close, uh, I do want to talk about just uh, two other quick things. Um, earlier, you mentioned uh, antibody testing, and you, recently uh, you wrote a really informative article for Fire Rescue One about uh, what first responders need to know, you know, as far as antibody testing and immunity. Um, can you break that down for us and kind of explain the two types of testing and talk about the reliability of antibody testing and it, it just both antibody testing and regular COVID testing so people kind of understand in a, in a nutshell uh, about those two things? Yeah, it's um, the the picture's in some ways not any more clear than it is with anything else COVID related, but there are two types of tests. One is the one where it's test testing to see if you actually have COVID at that time. So it's looking um, looking at for your uh, the a PCR test is is a different approach. One is looking at can you do you have the um, do you have the infection, and the other one is do, have you developed antibodies after the fact and the the struggle with the antibody test um early you know early on the um the fda said we, you could do emergency use of these tests and it looked like you know early pre-market testing really good sensitivity specificity so it looks like if, if if it was positive you were positive if it was negative you were negative once they put it out in the field, it doesn't look like it's as effective as they thought. Um, and it depends on the numbers you look at. Some of them are as low as like 50-50, which would mean that, you know, if you had a positive test, you could be positive or negative. If you have a negative test, you could be positive or negative, which really doesn't right. tell you anything. Right. Um, but there are two types even within the antibody testing. One that just either gives you a yes-no, and then another one that can actually measure the amount of antibodies. But typically what's used out in the field is the, is the yes-no one. Um, and it's really, there's a huge question mark as far as how effective those are, which is the concern. The hope initially was we could test folks if you had, you know, if you've developed an antibody, um, your body could, could fight it off, you'd be less likely to get reinfected, although questions remain about reinfections. Um, and you could, you know, then those folks could be the people there who were the front line of the front line. 
but the antibody tests have some challenges in that you know you can you can do the test, but if you had the infection, it was too recent, it might not show up um, that you have the antibodies yet. We also because this virus is not acting like any other virus really in some ways it is, but in other ways it's just really a, a unique um, unique. Virus, yeah, it's we don't we, the the data the, the um, data on this is not really certain about how long that grants you immunity if it grants you immunity and how long if it does the assumption is that it does and I think you know Dr Fauci's um, said that he that they that the newest data they have that they're looking at um, even pre publication do those the groups who are working on this say it looks like it does offer some immunity but. Um, I think the hope that this would be like the golden ticket to be able to tell you that you were okay is, is, was probably overly optimistic. Yeah, probably a little early. And, uh, yeah. you know, there's, there's still a lot of testing and, and work to do um, as we kind of close this out. What What's uh, next on the testing and uh, the preparation front, this whole research front? What's next? I, I really think it's just we've got to, you know, buckle in and realize that this is science takes time. Um, I think as frustrating as it, as it is, um, we've got to wait for the data and, and good data. And I think as you're trying to figure out like what to do and how to manage it, I think it's important to look for um, look for the the scientists that know what they're talking about and can speak intelligently about it. The, a lot of the um, and a lot of great scientists are you know taking to Twitter and and taking to blog posts. Um, so I think if, you know, you, you find people who have expertise in epidemiology, my absolute favorite, if you're on Twitter, is to follow Bob Wachter, who's the UCSF um, head of medicine. He tweets their ground rounds every week and translates their the latest science, things like that. I think the, the best lesson is to um, just buckle in and, and wait for the science to come out and be careful. And data on face masks, I think, is um, sufficient enough to say that they can be useful if it, but are, are absolutely no replacement for hand washing and um, social distancing. So yeah. some of the same stuff everyone else hears, but just for the fire service, just it'll be okay. You'll get through this too. I think of all the other things that the fire service has gotten through. Yep, absolutely. Well, Sarah, I appreciate you joining us here today uh, for our listeners. If uh, you want to learn a little more about uh, Dr. Sarah Janke, you can go to the firerescue1.com columnist page and you can uh, look her up, her contact information's there, and I'm sure uh, she'll engage with you uh, on any, uh, probably any topic uh, that you'd like to on research uh, with respect to the fire service. Let us know what you think here on Fire Rescue One. Join us next time on Fire Rescue One's Side Alpha podcast. Keep safe, stay smart, and take care. <laughs>